Go to James chapter 4. Let's get more practical now. But that's fun. I enjoy those kind of things, just to kind of search the Scripture and see what it has to say about some of this stuff. And there's an answer in there somewhere, by the way. We're just not always good enough to find it. James chapter 4. In the mid-1700s, Robert Robinson wrote a hymn. It's been sung in churches since for the last four decades, since, or a century since he wrote it. The hymn was called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Now, Robert Robinson at one time was a very committed Christian. He had a strong faith. He was, had a dedication to his church. However, he got away from the Lord. And as he got away from the Lord, he had not been inside a church in years and years and years. He had a strong love for the Lord that has sort of burned out. And he was a cold and lonely person uh, at, at this particular time. One day he was walking and a carriage uh, was going to pass him as he was walking by. And he motioned for the carriage to keep on going. Well, instead, that carriage stopped. And the lady inside offered Robinson a ride in the carriage with him if he was going to church. Well, he wasn't going to church, but he told her he was going to church and hopped in the carriage with her. He thanked her for her offer to, to give him, the, her, the, uh, him this ride. As they rode, she asked him his name. When he told her his name was Robert Robinson, she said, that is a strange coincidence. I'm just reading a poem here by a man with the exact same name. Is that you? And Robinson admitted that he was. And she exclaimed, imagine, I'm sharing a carriage with the author of these very lines. Robinson didn't hear anything more she had to say because he was absorbed in reading the poem that she handed to him, a poem that he had written. And here are the words he was reading as she said that to him. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. And as he read those words, tears began to well up in his eyes, and he told the woman, I wrote those words, and I've lived those words. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And that lady responded by saying, you also wrote, here's my heart, now take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You can give your heart back to God, she said. And Mr. Robinson, it's not too late to do that. And at that moment, he turned his heart back to God and walked with God the rest of his days after that. Why do I tell you that story? Look at James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. If you've ever been at odds with somebody that was important to you, somebody you truly cared about, then you know that you spend all of your time doing everything you possibly can to reconcile yourself to that person that you're having a difficulty with and try to repair that relationship. Uh, if they make any overture in your direction, uh, you would be ready to respond at a moment's notice and make things right. Folks, that's your God. That's your God. In a much grander way, that's exactly God's position whenever we drift away from him. If we make any movement toward him, if we show any interest at all in making things right with him, he is ready to respond. And there's no better illustration of that than what happened with the prodigal son. That son wandered and wandered, but every day that kid wandered, that father looked down that road every day and waited for that kid to come home. And the minute that son made his way back, that father welcomed him and hugged him like it never happened. Folks, we are prone to wander. Have you noticed that? We are prone to leave the God we love. This flesh is prone to leave God and to go our own way, but we can never go so far as believers in Jesus Christ that he forgets about us. We can never drift so far that we've drifted too far and God sees us as a lost cause. There are no lost causes in God's economy. And if we'll simply make any step back toward him, if we'll move back in the direction that we toward him again, as we said last week, God will make up the difference and draw back nigh to you as well.
Now, it's not best to wander. It's better that we don't. We need to do all we can not to wander from him. But if we ever do, God is always ready to draw nigh. If we, like Richard Robinson, will simply take the first step back toward him. Our first step in getting right with God is to get as close to him as we can. And let me just stop and tell you before we go on, what I'm giving you tonight as far as that particular verse is the practical application of that verse. That's how that verse applies to you and me. If we look at the doctrinal application of that verse, it's much different. Because, again, if we look at the doctrinal application, we're looking at the time of the tribulation. In the time of the tribulation, God makes no move toward anybody who doesn't move to him first. A person has to do their works first before God makes any move toward them whatsoever. A person must do their work and do their work and do that work first, and then God draws close to them. In the tribulation, unless a person draw, makes a move toward God by doing the works prescribed for them in the Old Testament, God makes no move toward them whatsoever. Thank God I'm not living in that time. <laughs> when I make any move toward God whatsoever, he's ready to receive me. And that's because of the love he has for us and because of the grace he's shown to us during this time. Look at verse 8 again. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Now, what's the process to that? How do we draw nigh to him? Well, the rest of the verse tells us, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. There's the process. Now, what he is doing there is echoing what David said back in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. David said, Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. When God talks about drawing close to him, he focuses on the hands and he focuses on the heart. And notice, first of all, the hands must be clean. And that assumes that the scripture, that the scripture gives us a standard as to how we can keep our hands clean. And the Bible does just that. Uh, folks, I know you know this. I think it's just good to say it every so often. Uh, the standard of righteousness that I follow is not something I come up with myself. I don't decide that. God's given me to that in his, given that to me in his word. Uh, I don't come up with this myself. I get into God's word. I look at the standard of righteousness God has set for his children and, and that God prescribes to. And then I follow that standard without bending it or adjusting it or reinterpreting it. And so to be very, very repetitious, there is no flexible standard in the word of God. I know this world, this culture likes to believe that there is, but there isn't. Things are right and things are wrong. And there are some things that, although they may not be evil, they give the appearance of evil. And God says, avoid those things too. So avoid what's wrong and avoid and do what's right. And if something even looks wrong, stay away from it. Avoid it. And there are all sorts of things the Bible tells me that although I may not see them as wrong, they may not be sin for me, but they might be a stumbling block to some other believer and it might cause them to sin. So I stay away from those things too. <laughs> Folks, if there's something in your life that might cause some other believer to fall, it may be okay for you to do it. God says stop doing it. Stop doing it for the sake of your brother or your sister. Just don't do it. Don't be a stumbling block. And so when I have the, what, I, what I do is I pray for the help of the Holy Spirit of God, and then I fulfill all those requirements the Word of God gives me in order to make that happen. And when I do that, my hands are clean. God, you've got clean hands. You've taken care of it. There's no dirt on your hands. Anytime I violate any standard God gives me as far as my behavior, as far as my, my operating in this life, whenever I do that, I dirty my hands. I dirty my hands. And if I dirty my hands, I've got to confess that to God. And then God forgives me and my hands are clean again. <laughs> and that's just how the process works. You may dirty your hands 10 times a day. Confess it 10 times a day and you got clean hands again. 
That's the process that, goes through, that God puts us through. And as long as my hands are clean, the Bible tells me here, I can draw nigh to God. Once I've got clean hands, I can get as close to God as I possibly can, and God will allow me to be just that close. If my hands are dirty, that sin separates me from God. I can't have closeness with him until I get that sin settled, until I get my hands clean again. So I can't get close with dirty hands. It's simply not possible to do that. Many believers try. It's not possible to do it. So that's the first thing. If I want to draw nigh to God, I've got to cleanse my hands. The second thing I need to do, I need to purify my heart. So notice here, there's an external part to this, and there's an internal part to this. The external is the behavior, the things that we do, and keeping ourselves clean by doing the right things. We also need to purify our hearts, and notice in particular, a pure heart refers to double-mindedness. So a pure heart is not double-minded. James talked about this back in chapter 1, I'm sure you remember. Uh, It must be so important to him that he talked about it again here in chapter 4. It is possible for a believer to have divided allegiances spiritually. We can have a divided allegiance. And that happens whenever I make anything as important or more important than I make him, while at the same time trying to uh, remain allied to him in the process. So I've got something else that I want to ally myself to. I make it as important as he is, but I try to stay connected to him as well. That's what the Bible would call a double heart. That's a double heart. Uh, That allegiance can be another person. It can be a pet sin. It can be an activity. It can be an amusement. It can be me. It can be any of those things. Anything that I include alongside God that I align myself to in the same way that I align myself to God creates inside me a divided heart, a double heart. I'm trying to align myself, be allegiance to two things at the same time. Now, there are some things that I align myself with to, to, uh, 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 with God that may clearly be wrong. There may be also things that I align myself to that are not wrong in themselves. But they become wrong because I dedicate myself so much to them in the same way that I dedicate myself to God. In the process of doing that, I divide my allegiance. For example, I've heard many, many people tell me that they don't come to church on Sunday evenings because that's family time. Why they don't have, can't use other six days for family time, I have no idea, but Sunday becomes their family time. You know what that is, folks? That's making your family as important as God. <laughs> That's a divided heart. That's a divided allegiance. But whenever I choose not to be in church because of some other reason that it's not a, uh, you know, I'm not sick, I'm not at work, there's, there's no other good reason, I just have allied myself to something else and chose to do that instead, I've got a double heart. I've got a double heart. I know there are guys who golf every Sunday morning instead of coming to church. You know what they've done? They've made golf the same level as God. They've doubled their heart by doing that. And insert whatever you want to put into that. I just chose golf because I know guys who do that. Uh, Insert whatever you want into that. Whatever it is, when that thing becomes as important to you as God is, that becomes a divided heart at that point. It may not be wrong to play. It's not wrong to play golf. I believe it's wrong to play golf every Sunday. (laughs) I think that's a problem. That's, That's dividing your heart. Family time is not wrong. Good for you to have family time. If it's every Sunday night, that's a problem, I believe. Again, that's just my opinion. You can... Throw it all out if you want to, because it's just my opinion. <laughs> I believe there's some scripture to back it up, though. Whenever I dedicate myself with the same intensity that I dedicate myself to God, I've divided my heart. And anytime I refuse to give up something, uh, even though I know it affects my relationship with the Lord, or it affects my ministry, or it affects my relationship with some other believer, or my impact on some other believer, I create a double heart. 
When God lets me know that thing is wrong as far as dividing me, and God shows me that, and I choose to do it anyway, I've chosen to maintain my double heart at that point. And it can be something small, it can be something insignificant, it can be something big, it can be something obvious. But if it has the effect that I just mentioned to you, it'll cause us to divide our allegiances, it will reduce my ability to get close to God. Those things keep me from getting closer to God. When I have a divided heart, I can't get close to him. That's what the verse says. That's what the verse says. Folks may see this as just a choice, just something they do. There's much more to it than that. God says, when you divide your heart, you can't get close to me like you want to. Not as close as you could. So what we need to do is what they tell you to do in the business and the corporate world. Uh, The businesses and the corporate people will tell you that what you need to do is assess your priorities. Check your priorities. See what's important to you. Uh, Most of those who are in corporate world in some way or another are told regularly to check their priorities, to check their goals. What are you working for? What's important to you? Well, that's a great thing to do spiritually as well. Consider what you are doing. Speaking to myself now, Sabaka, consider what you are doing that you are allowing to get in the way of living for God as he's called you to. Just take that assessment every so often, uh, more often than not, and just see what you're allowing to get in the way. What am I allowing to get in the way of me being the witness God wants me to be? What am I allowing to get in the way that reduces my positive impact on other believers? What am I allowing to get in the way that interferes with my church attendance or my attendance in the ministries of this church? And we do that assessment and we find some things in our lives that we uh, realize are getting in the way. And I say to myself, you know what? I can't let go of that thing. That thing's too important to me. I like to do that thing. I enjoy doing that thing. My life requires me to do that thing. I just can't let it go. I can't let it go. For example, again, I hope you understand. I'm just giving you examples. I know there are people who work overtime on Sundays. They have the opportunity. They don't have to. It's not required overtime. It's provided to them. And they work overtime on Sundays to make a little extra money. And you say to them, you know, uh, church is on Sunday. Maybe you need to do overtime the other days of the week and come to church on Sunday. And they will say, I need the money. I've got to have that income. That's got to be part of what I do because I need what, what that provides to me. Well, okay. You can say that if you want. Interestingly, though, God doesn't say that. Uh, folks say that, I, I do this because I need it. Folks say this, I do this because it provides enjoyment to me. I like what I, the feeling I have when I do it. I like what it does for me. And that all may be true, and it's wonderful to get overtime, and it's great to have activities that you enjoy. But it's amazing to me how this flesh is so good at, at times at making things requirements that are actually unnecessary. The flesh says it's required. And God says, not so much. Not really. You don't have to have those things. You don't need to do those things. You don't need what they provide. Uh, they meet a fleshly desire. They meet a fleshly priority that you set. And the flesh then identifies them as a requirement. Fascinating how that happens. Uh, you know, God's list of requirements is really pretty small. You know that? Uh, First Timothy, First Timothy 6, uh, uh, 7 and 8 give us God's requirements. Paul says, for he brought nothing into this world, it's certain we can take nothing out, and having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. You know what God says? God says you have two requirements of life. Food and clothes. <laughs> now, I feel like I need a little more than that. God says that's all you really need. If you've got food and clothes, you've got all you need. So anything else I add to that list, i got to evaluate that thing very, very carefully. Be careful about it. 
And if I find things that are not really requirements, if they're getting in the way of my spiritual walk in any way, I may need to consider eliminating those things. And the flesh will fight you every step of the way because the flesh will say, you need that. And God says, you really don't. You really don't. And by doing that, if I will eliminate those things that aren't requirements, that aren't needs, uh, I will create a single heart. And then I can draw nigh to God. Then I can draw nigh to God. Now, I realize, again, a lot of things get perverted over time. And so I'm not endorsing this. But I will tell you, uh, in the old days, some of the very, very religious people lived like hermits and monks. They separated out anything except what they had to have. Why did they do that? Because they knew anything else was going to get in the way. As they just took care of all of it. Now, again, I'm not telling you to become a monk. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, in the old days, they had the picture. They knew there were some things that really weren't requirements, and they could live without them. I think we in this country need to begin to consider that as believers ourselves. What do I really need? What's really an importance to me? What do I have to have? And begin to do that evaluation. Now, again, not all those things you have are wrong. Not all those things divide your heart. So that's not what I'm saying. But if they do, you might want to consider uh, unloading them uh, in order to get closer to God. All I know is this. My relationship with God will never be as close as it could be until I'm willing to surrender everything to him. I need to put everything on the table. Now, he may not take it all. I hope he doesn't, but, but he may, but he may not. But what I need to do is be willing to put it all on the table and say, okay, Lord, you tell me what's important. You show me here. You identify on this, this stuff I've laid out. You tell me what I have to have and what I don't have to have. And then we'll take it from there and kind of let God make that decision for you. It's a scary thought, but I'm going to tell you something, and I believe this. I really believe this. Getting rid of that stuff and getting closer to God will be worth the effort. <laughs> as opposed to having all that stuff and having a distant relationship with him. Amen. Hope you hear, hear, hear this how I'm saying it. I'm not telling you to go home tonight and sell your house. I'm not telling you to do that <laughs> unless God tells you to. Then that's between you and him. All right. All I know is this. I know that if you put a list of requirements down and compare it to God's list of requirements, your list is going to be a whole lot longer than his is. He's got a, he's got a very short list of requirements. And so we need to be willing at least to surrender what God shows us to surrender to draw closer to him. Amen. Now, as we think about that, look at verse 9. Uh, he's talking about cleansing your heart, sinners. He's talking about purifying, uh, cleansing your hands rather sinner, as sinners. Uh, purify your heart because you're double-minded. How should, what should our attitude be toward those things? How should we think about those things? Well, look at verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. What's he saying? He's saying, as I see my dirty hands... <laughs> As I see my divided heart, what I ought to do in response to that is be afflicted and mourn and weep and let my laughter be turned to mourning and my joy to heaviness. I ought to have a conviction about that thing that burdens me. That's what he's saying. Now, I know we've talked about this before, and I'm not going to spend too much time here, but I think it's worth saying one more time. There is something specific that I believe many believers have lost in this age. Uh, and I think as culture continues to deteriorate, it's going to get lost more and more and more. Many believers have lost a true, genuine sorrow for the sin that exists in their lives. Amen. They've lost that. They've lost that sorrow for it. Uh, you see, we've begun to tolerate sin. We've begun to accept sin. It's fascinating to me. I've been in the business of counseling in one form or another for 46 years. I've seen a lot of changes over the time as I've listened, talked to people and watched how values have changed, especially among believers. Folks, if, when I first started in this business, they would not have accepted some things, are now all tolerant about it. 
well, you know, whatever they want to do, and it's okay, we just need to love them, and all this kind of stuff. And again, I'm not going to get into all that. All I'm saying is, there's been a change in the attitude towards sin as the culture has continued to deteriorate. And it's come to the point where some believers will see sin in their lives, and it really doesn't affect them all that much. They're not all that bothered by it. And all I want to say about that is this. That has never been the biblical attitude towards sin from those who are truly dedicated to God. They have always had a sorrow about their sin. The people in Scripture who are truly dedicated to God had an extreme hatred for the sin that existed in their lives. I'm going to have you turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is the the psalm that David wrote after he was the sin with Bathsheba was revealed and he was caught and he (laughs) was repentant of that sin. I want you to hear what David says in Psalm 51. Look at verse 2. Now, this is a prayer of David to God about the sin that he has committed with Bathsheba. And he says, Wash me thoroughly thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Now, just look at that. Just look at that. He says, my sin is ever before me. I can't forget it because I'm so burdened by the fact that I sinned against you in this way. Notice he also says this sin was not against Bathsheba. This sin was not against the kingdom, although it was all those things. He said, I've sinned against you. That's a got him. That's where his concern was. And notice also he says that it might be clear when thou judgest. David says, Lord, you have every right to judge me for this sin. Isn't that a refreshing attitude? (laughs) Lord, I'm wrong, and you have the right to judge me for it. You can hear the sorrow in every word that he speaks as he acknowledges and confesses that sin. Turn to the book of Daniel, if you would. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prays a prayer as he sees the sin of his people, sees the sin of his nation. He prays a prayer, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. All of chapter 9 is that prayer. I just want to read a few verses of it to kind of get the the gist of it, if we could. So go to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 4. Daniel says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly, and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but thou unto us confusion of faces, as at this day, to the men of Judah, and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel that are near and that are far off through all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, to our kings, and to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against thee. And we'll stop there. Now, you see what he's saying? He's saying, Lord, we have sinned, and everything that's happening to us, we deserve. We brought it on ourselves because we've sinned, again, not against anybody else. We've sinned against you. And because of that, we are totally confused. Every part of our land, no matter where we are, there's confusion because we've sinned against you. Now, that's refreshing to me. Because you see, folks, we've lost that in this generation, I believe. 
When a church leader or a religious or political leader gets caught in some sin, we hear justification and resentment for being accused of it, and they reinterpret their behavior to mean something else. And you can see that every day in, in the church and in the political scene. Rarely at these days do we hear a heartfelt sorrow for sin when something like that happens. And many believers today have been pulled into that, have become masters at rationalizing their sin instead of acknowledging it and confessing it with sorrow and with tears. So what James says here is not the exception. What James says here, what he's writing here, is how it ought to be for every believer. When you become aware of your sin, when I become aware of my sin, no matter what that sin is, no matter how big or how small it might be, there should be affliction and mourning and weeping and heaviness. We ought to be so burdened by our sin and so regretful for what it does to our relationship with the Lord that we can't allow it to remain. We can't bear it. It is before our face all the time, and we must confess it and forsake it as soon as we become aware of it. Because we, help, we avoid the pain that comes in our relationship with the Lord being divided while that sin exists. Folks, somehow, someway, and I realize I'm probably preaching to the choir tonight. Uh, maybe there's somebody listening who can uh, get a hold of this. But uh, some way, we've got to return to seeing sin the way God sees it. Amen. And I mean all of this. I'm talking to myself as well. We need to begin to see sin the way God sees it. See sin through his eyes. <laughs> It must become pain, we must become painfully aware of the damage that every sin commits. Every sin, every sin, every sin, not just the big ones. Every sin divides you from your Savior, divides you from your Father. Every sin does that. And so we have to stop finding ways to accommodate it and justify it. And we need to get down on our faces with heaviness and affliction and confess it and forsake it. That's what I believe we need in this generation. And I believe we all need it. <laughs> all of us. Go back to James. I want to show you what awareness of sin will do. James chapter 4, look at verse 10. But I'm going to read the start of verse 8. Let's just read the whole context here. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. What should a confession of sin bring? What should awareness of sin bring? An awareness of sin should bring humility to my heart and to my soul. What my awareness of sin should do is make me, just make it very clear to me what I am in my basic nature. And it should eliminate any pride that I might have. <laughs> Folks, the reality is, pride is the most ridiculous trait we could, ever, we could ever display as a believers. It is the most ridiculous thing we could ever try to display in a life of a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you just how ridiculous it is. Go to Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 3. Here is how ridiculous it is for any believer to somehow take pride in themselves or what they've done. Romans chapter 3, very, very familiar passage to you, I'm sure. I want you to notice in verse... Uh, Verse 10, how it starts. Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none. <laughs> so get it out of your mind that somehow you're the exception to the rule, Sabaka. You're not the exception to the rule. There is none. Every person listening, every person on earth is included here without exception. There is none that righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none, none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. 
The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, there's none, no exception. We have no understanding. We don't seek God. We always go on the wrong path. We never do anything that provides any positive gain, and we never do anything good. You ready for more? Our throats are sinful, and our tongues are sinful, and our lips are sinful, and our mouths are sinful, and our feet are sinful, and our ways are sinful, and our ways are divisive and contentious, and we have no real idea what it means to fear God. (laughs) That's God's assessment of you and I. That's his picture. Now, with that being said, find something to be proud of. (laughs) Find somewhere where pride can take some hold and, and make some difference in all of that. Find one part where you or I have done something that is worth anything at all. Show me anything that you and I have done in our flesh that we can take some sort of pride in. When at our core, that's what we are right there. Romans chapter 3. You know what James is saying here, folks? James is saying, let go of the pride. Stop building yourself up. Stop trying to make yourself look like more than what you are. Stop talking about your accomplishments. Stop talking about your knowledge. Stop talking about your learning. Stop talking about your schooling. And just see yourself like God sees you. How does God see me? Romans chapter 3, verse 10 through 18. That's how God sees me. Just get that picture of yourself. And when you do that, go back to James now if you would one more time. If you'll get that picture, if you allow yourself to see yourself the way God sees you, uh, look what happens as a result. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. Well, that is certainly humbling. And he shall lift you up. (laughs) There it is. Stop trying to lift yourself up, Sabaka. Humble yourself and let God lift you up. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. You see, folks, uh, let go of your pride. If I will let go of my pride and humble myself, God's blessings will come to me and my relationship with God will be as close as it possibly could be. If I will simply let go of my pride and see my sin for what it is and get that sin settled. You want to walk with God? You want to walk close to God? You want to have the closest possible relationship with God? Okay, cleanse your hands, purify your heart, mourn over your sin, humble yourself. And let God lift you up. And he'll do it. That's how it works. That's the way to gain the relationship with God that he wants you to have.